Hey there, welcome to Louisiana Farm Life, a podcast where we talk with farmers and others who work in and around the ag industry in Louisiana about who they are, what they grow, and the struggles they face on and around the farm. We'll also talk about what they enjoy doing when they're able to get away from the farm. I'm your host, Carl Wiggers, and I grew up living my very own farm life in Northeast Louisiana. I'm joined again today by Avery Davidson. Avery, welcome back to the podcast. It's good to be back. I always love coming and talking about our farmers and ranchers and rural residents who really live the Louisiana farm life. It's nice. I really enjoy having somebody else in here to talk with. <laughs> yeah, because you're normally talking to yourself and you answer yourself, I too. Do. That's the crazy part. Somebody's got to answer me. <laughs> Well, we often joke a little bit about how you love podcasts. I do. And you've done this, what, your ninth, this is the ninth episode here? Mm-hmm. What have you learned so far doing this podcast? Well, one of the things I've learned is that farmers have a lot more to say than we can usually get in our stories on mm-hmm. Twyla, on This Week in Louisiana Agriculture. And it's usually some very rich stories in that. So I've really learned that farmers have plenty to say and people have some great stories out there and it's kind of podcasting is kind of a fun place to go and get those stories. And also I've noticed over the years that sometimes the camera makes them a little nervous oh, yeah. that they're being watched, whereas they can let loose a little bit more whenever it's just a, a microphone and you know a, a fellow farm guy like you well, doing the interview. <laughs> you actually heard that some of that in this episode because today's guest actually, you can just hear him kind of loosen up mm-hmm. as the conversation goes and that, that happens a lot and usually the best stories come out of that being relaxed and stuff it's really it's kind of cool is that what you like about this medium of a podcast whenever you think about it it's just a conversation i mean Mm -hmm. we can be sitting across the table in this case we're sitting in an office just you know a couple of us sitting by a desk and doesn't really mean anything other than just just sitting there chatting face to face and it's kind of that's what I really enjoy about podcasts because, I mean, I love meeting people. I know mm-hmm. you are an extrovert. I love meeting people and hearing their stories, and that's one of the things that attracts me to podcasts in mm-hmm. general. I listen to podcasts that are story-driven, and one of the things that I love about getting to go and conduct these interviews is just getting to know people, and, uh, you know, this week's no different. Well. Since you've talked about this week and what you've learned and how much fun you had doing this, and we met this guy on Twyla already. You did a mm-hmm. story about him, but go ahead and introduce us to this week's guest. All right. On this episode, I sit down with Matt Branch. He's a territory manager for a cottonseed company. A, a seed rep is how most people understand the job. Uh, he's got a fascinating story about how he was raised in a farming family. He played college football at LSU, which I really love to hear about. He came home to Northeast Louisiana and began his career in the ag industry, and his life was turned just completely upside down by a hunting accident that happened just a few days after Christmas this past year, so 10 months ago. So he tells about the accident, how his hunting buddies saved his life, and how he fought to stay alive, and it's just an incredible story, and it's, you know, the way that he's been able to move on is just unbelievable. So with that, let's just get straight to the interview with Matt Branch here on Louisiana Farm Life. Matt Branch, thanks for joining me today on the podcast. You've got quite an interesting story, but you also just come from a farming family and you've grown up in agriculture. Tell me about what you do in agriculture today. You know, that you've been doing, how long have you been doing this? So Carl, I've been working in agriculture since I graduated college. Uh, started off with uh, Nutrient Ag Solutions. They're a local distributor here in the North Louisiana area. They have several stores. Uh, I worked out of the Ravel store uh, did that for three and a half years, got a lot of experience, learned a lot about the industry. 
And uh, from there, I transitioned to go to work for an agricultural manufacturer, which is now called Corteva AgriScience. Uh, formerly, it was Dow AgriSciences, mm-hmm. but Dow and DuPont merged. Uh, I guess it was started about two years ago now, and we've kind of got it all finalized, which the merger of Dow DuPont created Corteva AgriScience, which is basically just the agricultural division of the two companies that merged. Because mm-hmm. they make more than just you know ag products. Right? Oh, yeah. I mean, there's so many products that Dow and DuPont are responsible for that go into everything we use on a daily basis. And, um, you know, the company would have been so big to try to keep it all together. So what they decided to do was split the two companies up into three. Um, and I, I'm not a hundred percent sure what the Dow, uh, responsibility is going forward. I want to say it's like material sciences. Uh, the DuPont piece is for like specialty products. And then Corteva is obviously the agricultural side of the two companies. So what do you do within Corteva? So within Corteva, I work with Phytogen Cottonseed, which is our only cottonseed brand uh, underneath the Corteva umbrella. Um, And basically my job title with them is territory manager. And what this entails is uh, basically a sales rep. It's kind of just a new title for sales reps. I know everybody's familiar with, you know, the old sales reps um, from back in the day. But uh, that, that's basically what my what my job is with Corteva. Cool, and you obviously enjoy it. You've been doing it for since college, right? Same yeah. same kind of general job. Yeah, they're pretty similar. Um, my job now is a little different than where I was before uh, at Nutrien. You know, it was it was a great experience. I enjoyed it a lot. We had a you know a great team in the area that I work closely with every day. But with Corteva, it's a little different. We don't have quite as big of a team anymore. Uh, We're more spread out, but you have a little bit more uh, leeway on, you know, your business Mm. decisions and kind of, you know, how you approach um, your your job basically every day. You know, they kind of give you a little bit of freedom. As long as you meet your numbers and your quotas, then then you know they're okay with with how you do it for the most part. And am I right? And I mean, I, I, we were talking about this earlier in the truck. I'm pretty ignorant to the the chemical sales rep, you know, seed sales rep type roles. But you're dealing with farmers, and you're dealing with retail outlets like Nutrien, who you used to work for. Am I right? That's right. Uh, so I have two levels of customers. I have retail customers, and I have grower customers. And I work with both of them. Um, you know, it's it's kind of um, kind of weird to navigate that sometimes because mm-hmm. sometimes I feel like I need to be working with a certain grower more, or sometimes I feel like I need to be working with a certain retail salesman more. So uh, you just kind of have to figure that out as you go along in a job like this. So you were raised in agriculture. You had your family farms. Your dad works in. He actually worked in the same position you did growing up, right? Or same same type of position, right? You went off, you played football, which we're going to talk about in a little bit. You were big in athletics uh, as, as a high schooler, I guess as a, probably all your life. But you, you, you came back to ag because why? What is it that brought you back into this industry after college? And why do you like agriculture? It's just something, I guess, when I decided, you know, what direction I wanted to go after I graduated college, you know, agriculture was something that I was familiar with, something that I was comfortable with. And um, what has really kept me in this industry since I graduated is just the people. I mean, mm-hmm. the people that I work with every day are, are really great people. 
And, um, you know, it's a, it's a privilege and an honor, you know, to work with, with the kind of folks that I deal with every day and, um, you know, to work in this great industry we call agriculture. One of the things that we were, as we were discussing earlier, that's one of the things I love about my job is that I get to interact with people, you know, my family, but people just like my family, people that I grew up with. It's just a way of life that's different and people in agriculture, they have something about them and it's just being around that kind of intangible, you know, good natured, good people. That's something that you've gotten to experience, you know, the good nature in a way that I don't know if anybody else can probably ever uh, understand, but a part of agriculture is off season. In the off season, there's a lot of, you know, preparation that goes into the next year, but there's also a lot of enjoyment in hunting. You're into hunting. And I'm sure that's probably something you've always, looking at the office here at your family's uh, farm office, I can tell that's been something part of the family for a long time. Tell me about your love for hunting and where that came from. Yeah, so I was introduced to hunting, um, you know, by my dad when at a very young age. And uh, obviously you can see by all the, the wall mounts that, uh, you know, my entire family is something that we've always enjoyed. And, you know, I've been around it for a very long time. And um, it's just something that it brings us all together, you know, in the in the fall and winter months. And, and we all enjoy spending time with each other. You know, it's not just about, you know, the hunt and, you know, killing a deer or going duck hunting and, and shooting a duck. It, it's about spending time together. And that's been something that's just really um, has been a passion of mine, you know, throughout the years when it comes to hunting. Um, I started hunting with my dad when I was probably seven or eight years old. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I really haven't stopped since. Now, I've had points in my life where I couldn't hunt as much as I would have liked to. Um, but, uh, you know, I've always, it's always been something that I really enjoyed. And it's something that I'm going to continue to enjoy for the rest of my life. Anybody in, in probably, I would probably say in the Southern Farming Facebook group, but in the South, all, I mean, you'd have to be trying to avoid your story over the last, you know, really over Christmas and January of this past year, you had a, a tragic accident. Can you kind of tell me about what happened, you know, in in the rice field over in Mississippi? So we were duck hunting. We were at Eagle Lake, Mississippi, and uh, it was December the 28th, uh, 2018, three days after Christmas. It was me, my cousin, my youngest brother, and uh, two friends and we had plans to wake up that morning and and try a spot out on the farm that we had had success at um, for multiple years. And we had scouted it the day uh, prior, and there was birds in the area. So, you know, we were excited. We thought we would have a good hunt. And uh, we made a plan to kind of split up, you know, divide and conquer, I guess, as you'd say. And um, due to some crazy circumstances and stuff that happened to me that morning, you know, I was originally supposed to hunt by myself. And um, like I said, due to some crazy bad luck, I guess you could call it that, uh, I was forced to hunt closer to one of the other groups. And, um, you know, we had had a pretty good morning, a lot of shooting, a lot of birds flying. It was a real nasty day, real cloudy. Wasn't super cold, but it, it was pretty chilly. It was probably mid to high 40s that day. And um, as we were kind of packing our gear up and everything to finish the hunt, uh, I had laid my shotgun over in the back 
of the Polaris Ranger. And I forgot to take a shell out of the chamber. You know, it was the only shell that was left in my gun. And uh, it was in the chamber. It was in the ready uh, fire position, you know. And um, as we were standing around packing up the Ranger, getting ready to head back to camp, we had a dog with us that day. The dog jumped in the bed to load up to leave. And it couldn't have been more than a second or two that my gun went off. And it was a loud noise. It didn't sound quite like a gunshot. You know, when you think of a a gunshot when you're out duck hunting, it's a loud, booming, kind of echoing sound. It didn't sound like that at all. It sounded like somebody dropped a black cat firework on the ground by us and just pop, you know, real quick. So we didn't know immediately that a gun went off. And uh, I remember somebody yelled out, what was that? You know, at that point, I looked down and I noticed a large gaping hole in the side of the ranger bed. And it was right next to my left leg. I mean, directly next to it. So immediately I realized, all right, I've been shot, but I didn't know how bad because it happened so fast. I didn't feel it or anything like that. So I went to kind of take a step back to get a better look at what happened. And uh, as I stepped back, my left leg didn't move. And I stumbled and fell to the ground and immediately the adrenaline rush hit me and I just screamed as loud as I could. And uh, immediately everyone realized that I had been shot, you know, after after the gun went off and mm-hmm. it directly hit me in the left leg. And uh, they scrambled. My cousin called 911 immediately. Phone service where we were at was real spotty. So we, it wasn't guaranteed we were going to get anybody on the phone. But luckily that call went through. And uh, the other two that were there picked me up and loaded me in the Ranger. Immediately, I could tell by the way my body reacted that it was a serious injury. I mean, my body just shut down on me. It felt like somebody stuck a vacuum to my head and just sucked all the energy out of my body just immediately. You know, that that drop in blood pressure is very real. You know, you can feel the effects of it immediately. But uh, anyway... They loaded me up and decided to take me to the nearest highway, which looking back on it, this very thing probably saved my life um, in, in the heat of the moment. You know, they, they could have taken me to the camp. It was about the same distance from the camp as we were to the highway. And at the camp, you know, we probably had some medical supplies or something they might have thought they could help me with. But um, they decided to go to the highway instead, which saved my life at the end of the day, because that probably saved the ambulance 30 minutes or so in getting me to the hospital. And at this point, you know, every second counted. Mm-hmm. Um, once we got to the highway, I was barely alive. I mean, I, I was fighting to breathe. You know, that was probably the worst part about it to me was I couldn't breathe. Um, you know, I felt like I was trying to breathe through a straw with an elephant sitting on my chest. Wow. I mean, it was I mean, it was unbearable and, and it's frightening because as a person, you know that if you can't breathe, then you're not gonna live much longer, you know? And this is going through my mind all while I'm just trying to fight to stay awake, you know? And you see in all the movies, when somebody gets injured, everybody's telling them, you know, stay with me, stay with me. Well, that's what I was thinking in my head. I just, I just gotta stay awake, you know, mm-hmm. and I might can pull through this. Got me to the highway and, you know, I just started to think about my son. I have a two-year-old son at the house and uh, my wife. 
And, you know, I, I seriously thought that I would never see them again. And, you know, that was extremely difficult to process while I'm sitting there trying just so hard to breathe. And, uh, you know, you think about, you know, the times that I wish I would have spent with them. You know, I wish I would have been at the house more watching them grow up, you know, and, you know, I was just worried about my wife, you know, having to raise him alone from now on. And, um, you know, it was just extremely difficult to deal with all while staying alive. <clears throat> soon, soon after, probably 15 minutes after we got to the highway, the ambulance showed up and uh, they went to start cutting my waders off. And, you know, my friend and my cousin that were with me up by the road, you know, kept telling me to hang in there. It doesn't look that bad. You're going to be fine. And I was sitting there thinking to myself, no, this is bad. You know, I can feel it. This is really bad. Well, as they started to cut my waders off, it was realized that, you know, most of the blood that I had lost was still contained in my waders. So they couldn't really tell. They couldn't see. You know, I remember hearing one of them say, oh, my gosh, you know, when they cut my waders off, like it was that bad. You know, I had, mm -hmm. I had nearly bled out at that point. And um, the last thing I remember was them loading me up in the ambulance. And I just kind of remember going around some curves, you know, some bumps in the road and then nothing but, you know, darkness, black. And uh, it, it was like going to sleep, you know, basically. I didn't didn't have any, you know, crazy visions or anything right away. Um, I think it was probably a few hours later, uh, once I got to Jackson ICU that, you know, they were able to, you know, kind of keep me alive and I was on life support and I had a brief memory of my wife, my dad and my, my uh, brother that were in the room with me and they were kind of talking to me, you know, and telling me to hang in there and, and everything. And I remember that, but, uh, that's really my only memory until 12 days later after the accident, I finally came to, I became conscious. Um, you know, they had to, I think, pump uh, 350 units of blood in me, which is, for anybody that's in the medical profession out there, that is an absurd amount of blood. That is a lot of blood. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, everybody that I've talked to and kind of shared my story with, nobody's heard, you know, that much blood having to be used to keep somebody alive. Uh, they also had to do 13 surgeries in all, um, and some of those were to take my left leg. You know, they were able to save my life, but they had to take my left leg in order to do so. And, um, you know, it, it, it was a lot to process when I woke up and they had to break the news to me that, you know, my leg was gone now. You know, immediately you start to think back on, you know, what's my life going to be like going forward? You know, am I, am I still going to be able to hunt? And fish like I always have. Am I even going to be able to work uh, my job, you know, in the ag industry that I love so much? Am mm -hmm. I even going to continue to be able to do that, you know? Or am I even going to be able to be present at my house? You know, am I going to be able to get up off the couch or get up out of bed without some assistance? You know, these things run through your mind and, and you don't have a clue, you know, what's going to happen. Because at that point, after I woke up, I was explaining to you earlier that, you know, I was so weak. I could not pick my arms up off the bed. I couldn't even feed myself. I had to have somebody come by and feed me for like the first three or four days after I woke up just because I had no strength in my body from, from my body fighting so hard just to stay, stay alive. But, uh, you know, it, it was a lot of, a lot of gut checking stuff there and a lot of emotions tied into, you know, what was my life going to be like, you know, going forward. Mm -hmm. And, um, 
you know, that was all very difficult to process all while just trying to get out of the hospital, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, you were in a medically induced coma for 12 days while they were doing all these surgeries and just trying to, trying to make sure your body was still functioning. Cause you told me earlier, you, your heart stopped beating Yeah. for, you know, 40 minutes or whatever it was. And they were just, they were just trying to make sure that your body would stay alive and, you know, your organs would still work and yeah. And then they're going to focus on the legs. So it, I'm sure it was just crazy outside. I mean, it was probably real peaceful for you. Just you, you went to sleep and you woke up after it all kind of the storm had kind of passed. Once you were alive, your leg is gone. The storm kind of started in between your ears. What is life going to look like after this? You talked about not being able to pick your arms up off the bed. What was it that, I mean, I know your son probably had a lot to do with it that kind of pushed you, you know, to say, I'm not going to, this isn't going to keep me down. Yeah. So a lot of that was, you know, my son, I had a lot to live for. You know, I didn't want my mistake that I made to hold him back from living the life that he deserved. So I knew from that point on that I, I had to get better. I had to find a way, you know, maybe we didn't know how to do it at that point, but I knew I could find a way I could figure it out, you know, how to get to where I wanted to be and where I needed to be in order to, you know, give my son the life he deserved. But, um, and I would also say, you know, a lot of my mentality and my mindset and my physical training and, you know, what I've done physically to kind of get to this point comes back from my days that I played football at LSU. Um, I've signed a scholarship to play for them in 2008. And uh, that was some of the most fun and challenging years of my life, for sure. Um, you know, 18-year-old kid, I, and I had scholarship offers to play just about anywhere I wanted to in the South, you know, just about every SEC school and, you know, every school in Louisiana, Arkansas, some into Texas, Mississippi, you know. I could have gone just about anywhere I wanted to go. And um, I chose to go play for my home state school, the LSU Tigers. You know, I followed them my whole life I was a huge fan we went to games when I was young and old and um, when I got the opportunity to go to school there and play football I was just pumped about it you know I was psyched out and uh, and I really didn't know what I was getting myself into at the time you know I knew it was going to be tough and I knew it wasn't always going to be fun but I guess I just didn't understand how tough it was really going to be and going through that and surviving some of those just grueling workouts and, you know, July and August in South Louisiana, you know, it's super hot outside and we're outside running, you know, countless wind sprints and doing up downs and crazy stuff. And, you know, going through all that um, and surviving and knowing that I made myself better, you know, it might not have been fun while I was doing it, but when I finished it, you know, I felt like I'd accomplished something. I felt like somebody. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, that's kind of how I've treated this whole process since the news that I got where I lost my leg. I knew this wasn't going to be fun. This is not going to be easy. But the more I've been able to do and the farther I've been able to push myself, the more confidence that I have that I can continue to push myself from now on. You know, mm -hmm. this this injury is not going away. It's not like I've just got to deal with using a prosthetic for a couple of years and then magically my leg will reappear. You know, this is for life. And that's kind of been a gut check to me thinking about, you know, 
all right, I know what I need to do right now to get better, but what am I going to need in 20, even 30 years from now? Mm-hmm. You know, what is my life going to be like then? So I'm not only preparing myself now, but I'm preparing myself for down the road for when, you know, I could have more problems come mm-hmm. up. We were talking about that earlier with diet. But yeah. one, one of the things that I think should be mentioned here is whenever you had this accident, I mean, 10 months ago, you're, well, your first haul, you're six foot six tall. Yeah, six inches. Tall I mean, guy. You're a yeah. big guy. And you were probably what 275 at the time. That's a you're a you're a big guy. And to go through this and then now to have, you know, all this rehab, this therapy, this new leg to learn how to walk on, you've dropped a hundred pounds. Yeah, I'd is say that, is that where you were at? Yeah, now? from from the day of the accident to now. I'm all over a hundred pounds lighter, yeah. which is crazy to think about. You know, now some of that is you know, my leg that's no longer there. Of course, that that was, you know, a good chunk of that. But mm-hmm. I've lost a bunch of weight myself, you know, just trying to, being, you know, physically active, working out. You know, my dieting has been just on another level. You know, mm-hmm. I never thought that I would have to revert back to all the stuff that I learned when I was in LSU so much mm-hmm. later in life as I have now. You know, it's, it's crazy. You know, they used to put us through the ringer on diet and, you know, making sure we're fueling our bodies with, you know, good food mm-hmm. and not just junk so we could perform at a high level. Well, I got done with my time at LSU and I was like, well, I'm going to throw all that out the window. I'm never going to use that again. Man, how wrong was I? You yeah. know, now I use it every day, if not more so yeah. than I did when I was at school down at LSU. What was interesting is that you're talking about now when you're not using your leg, you can take your leg, your prosthetic leg off, right? When you take that off, you're using crutches still to get around the house. And you were talking about 30 years down the road, what kind of weight do I want to be carrying on crutches whenever I'm not using my leg? And I was just like, man, that's, you know, stuff I don't have to even think about right now. You know, I guess I could in a different way, but it's a new perspective, obviously, for you to have. Um, It's just, it's crazy to imagine. And I, I know you never imagined you'd be where you're at, but something else that's kind of crazy to imagine is it's now it's today's date is you know october 28th i think you're exactly 10 months from the date that you were you know this accident happened and you're living life like normal you were doing that six months ago you were back to working full-time you know tell me about kind of the process after you know when you kind of when you came to and you you kind of accepted what you know the cards that you were dealt and you said okay I've got to get to it. I'm not going to let this change the way my son's life is. You know, I'm not going to let this keep me down. What was therapy? What was getting fitted for a leg? You know, what's what's been life? What's life been like since the the, the coma and surgeries? Yeah, so it's it's been a roller coaster ride to be be honest. You know, um, like I said, when I first woke up, I was so weak. You know, I basically had to start from zero. Like I was born again you know, and had to work my strength and everything all the way back up to, to where I am today. But, um, you know, when I woke up and I was given the news that I was an amputee, you know, I, I didn't know anything about an amputee. I didn't know what kind of life they lived. And I didn't even know an amputee at the time. So all this information, you know, my family was, was really good about you know, researching stuff on the internet. And they'd come to me and be like, oh, have you seen this? Look at this, look at that. And you know, I was sitting there all the time just trying to process it all. And I, I really wasn't paying attention at first because I knew that 
all the things that we could find on the internet. There's no way I could ever do them unless I got my strength back. So that was my first goal was to get my strength back. And I started working with physical therapy, um, eating right, and just trying to, you know, do everything that I could think of. You know, I was thinking back to all my workouts with LSU and, you know, what kind of movements I could try to mimic and, you know, what muscle groups to target and everything. And, um, you know, I started to work at it every single day. You know, I'd lay on the ground and do sit-ups, push-ups, you know, whatever I could think of, whatever I had the strength to do, I was trying to do it. And, um, you know, that was one of the things that my practitioner, the guy who built my prosthetic, he, his office is actually in Chicago. That's where he works out of. He came to visit me when I was in the hospital. He heard my story and he wanted to visit me. And he actually specializes in my specific amputation, which is called hip disarticulation, if anybody's interested. And he told me from the get-go, he said, this is all going to be up to you. You know, nobody can do this for you. You've got to do it yourself. And here's what I need you to be at. Here's the kind of strength level I want you to be at so I can fit you with a leg and you're going to have success with it. You know, if you can't get here, then I don't think we can work together. And he told me straight up. And and that was what I needed to hear because it sounded so familiar to when I was at LSU. You know, they weren't, um, you know, beating around the edges. They told you straight up what they needed from you and they expected you to get it done. Well, he did the same thing. He treated me no different. And, um, you know, when I, once I heard that and I realized, okay, this is going to be up to me. Um, this is going to be up to how strong I get between now and when we go to Chicago. Um, you know, I, I just started to work at it every single day and, and really push myself. And, and when I showed up four months later, um, to his office in Chicago, I was ready and he built me a good, solid, comfortable leg. And, uh, they were shocked at how good I was. I mean, I picked it up the first day I strapped the leg on and I started walking around, you know, holding on to some parallel bars at first to kind of get the feel for it. And within the first two hours, I was walking across the room unassisted and, you know, they just couldn't believe it, you know, to see somebody my size with the amputation as difficult as I had and to be able to pick it up in a mere couple of hours, they were just in utter total disbelief and mm-hmm. shock. And, um, you know, that all came back to him telling me that day in the hospital, look, this is where you got to be. And I don't know. I just said it in my head that, all right, this is what he said I got to do. That's what I'm going to do no matter the cost, you know, and uh, it wasn't always easy getting out of bed, you know, and and trying to go squeeze a workout in or, you know, trying to eat right. Um, you know, I, I was wanting my desserts and my comfort level of food that I'm used to. And, you know, that was off the table. You know, I had to had to do away with that for a while. I've kind of gotten myself in enough shape where I can enjoy some a cookie every now and then or a bowl of ice cream or something, you know, but um I also have a six pack now, which I never thought I would have in my life. You know, I was a six, six, 305 pound offensive lineman in, when I was at LSU. And, you know, now I'm six, six, 170 pounds with a six pack. I don't think I 
anybody ever imagined that for me in my life. Yeah. But uh, I don't recommend. I'm, I haven't lived through what you've lived through, but I don't recommend getting a six pack that way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, that's what I tell people. I got a heck of a weight loss program, yeah. but uh, it might be pretty difficult for the first few months. But I guarantee you're going to lose some weight. Yeah, you know? for sure. But uh, but no, yeah. So that that's really kind of you know, been my story the last few months. And, and I have been, you know, pretty successful walking this way and, and learning, you know, how to do it. And it didn't start off easy, you know. I mean, you got to learn to trust the prosthetic because it's not anything like a normal leg. Mm-hmm. You know, don't don't be fooled by it looks kind of like a leg when I have pants on, but it works nothing like it. You know, it is completely foreign, and you've got to figure it out from from ground zero, basically. You, you got computers in your in your ankles and knees, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. This leg is the smartest thing in the room right now. I promise you that. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure of that. <laughs> no I'm sure offense. Of that. No, I, I take zero offense to that. I, I believe that wholeheartedly. Yeah. Earlier, we talked about you know how this has been on your family. You know, it's been you know it's brought y'all really close. You've had to really depend on each other and lean on each other, but it's also coming back kind of full circle to the the ag community that you work in, you know, just the small town vibe of Northeast Louisiana. Everybody's kind of come, you know, they've been on team, team branch and, and your recovery and just supporting you with prayers and financially. Can you tell me about kind of how the ag community kind of just all came to your side? Yeah. I mean, it, it it's really been overwhelming, you know, um, you know, the ag community has been near and dear to my heart for many years now, but uh, it's even more near and dear to my heart now after going through this accident. Um, you know, people reached out and offered to help in, in so many different ways and, you know, gave blood in my name and, you know, sent out prayers for me, uh, donated um, money to us. I mean, it's just been overwhelming. You know, people brought us food when I got out of the hospital and, you know, I'm just so blessed that, you know, I was a part of the ag community going through all this. Um, you know, I'm sure there's other industries out there that are close knit and tight, but I can't imagine that any any industry is tighter than the ag one is, mm-hmm. um, you know, especially in, in this northeast Louisiana uh, area. You know, it, it's just been overwhelming the amount of support and, you know, encouragement that I've gotten from from so many people out there that I work with. Um, even competitors that I compete against every day, you know, they were some of the first ones to reach out to me and and offer any support or help that they could. And and to me, I mean, it brought tears to my eyes when, you know, I saw the amount of support that we got from everybody. And, uh, you know, it's just, it's just such a special feeling to be a part of a community as tight knit as, as the ag community is. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, we're just very blessed, me and my family both, to be a part of something so special and something that's that's bigger than we are. Yeah. We talked about I mean, your wife did, wasn't raised in ag like you and I were. And that was, I think, I think a cool opportunity for her. I mean, again, wouldn't wish it on anyone, but what better way to show what the ag community is all about than to see, you know, them coming to the aid of one of their own. Yeah, my wife definitely had a good learning experience. You know, she was she's been the type that that buys everything organic in the store, and you know thinks that the agriculture industry may not be the the best one out there. But I think her opinions definitely changed now after going through this and, and seeing the level of support, and you know just a 
now she has an understanding of the type of people that that we do that I deal with every day on mm-hmm. a day to day basis, and uh, I think she's very appreciative that that's that's part of our life, you know. Yeah, they're kind of the best. I'm I'm biased, but I think I think they're they're the best. You said there might be other industries. I don't know what they would be. Yeah, it's 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 a fun industry to work with, and it's not just you know when somebody gets. And a, and a hunting accident, but you see it all the time when somebody gets sick and all the neighbors come to the come to the farm and harvest that guy's crop, you know, or something like that, or this guy's picker burns up, so everybody comes to the help, you know, comes to aid them, and it's kind of it. it it's a it, those are the feel good stories that are fun to tell, but you know, it's not. Those are also the stories where farmers aren't doing it because it. You know, it'll look good on Facebook, but they're doing it because that's right. just who they are. Yeah, um, they truly care. You know, yeah. They truly care. Matt, I'm really appreciative of you giving me some of your time. I'm appreciative of, you know, your contribution to the LSU football family <laughs> yeah. as a Tiger fan. But I also, I, we, I mentioned this earlier, I saw you out there. You still go down to games as much as you can. Is that a regular thing? Is that a once a, once a year kind of kind of trip for you or is that pretty regular for you? We try to go down, you know, to at least one game, maybe two games a year. Uh, we still have some friends in the Baton Rouge area, so we like to go down there and visit them and kind of use an LSU game as an excuse to go. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, we were we were down there a couple weeks ago at the the Florida game, and uh, we got to I got to do the old uh, player walk down the hill, which was pretty cool, brought back some memories. I'm sure uh, everybody in the crowd was wondering who the heck I was and didn't think I had ever played LSU. You know, I was walking down there with a titanium leg and everything and looking like more like a punter than an offensive lineman these days, you know, at 170 pounds. So uh, I'm sure I got some strange looks, but, you know, it was great to, to get back and just feel the atmosphere. And, you know, I got to see a lot of the guys that I played with too. You know, there was a lot of former players there that week for that game. And, um, yeah, we, we, we enjoy getting back down there from time to time. Um, however, I will say football season kind of falls at a bad time of year for me. You know, that's also hunting season, mm. and that is also something I really enjoy. So which one takes precedent? Well, the last few years I'm going to say hunting did because when I was in college, I really didn't get a choice, an option to go hunting. You know, I was, I was forced to do football every single day. Uh, all through hunting season so when I finally got a little freedom and was able to you know take advantage of uh, some nice cold fronts uh, in December and January I I definitely have jumped on that opportunity the last few years so you think the pendulum will swing back eventually once once you kind of get your fix I think so you know our son's getting older and we want him to go down there and experience you know LSU campus on game day and I'm sure we'll probably I'll probably have to split it a little bit more 50-50 going forward. What are you more excited about his first duck hunt or his first LSU game? Oh, that's a tough question. I don't know. <laughs> uh they're both it's they're both pretty exciting, but uh I mean I think right now I'd probably have to say his first LSU game for sure. Yeah. It's an experience like no no other. I was at the Florida game and obviously you were too. Uh, being in that stadium whenever when there's a big game happening, it's hard to beat. Even just being around campus, but especially in the stadium, you know when the the team comes out, it's I, I can't imagine what it feels like running out. But just being in the yeah. in the stands is something to something to be at experience. Yeah. It's a roar like no other. You know, I, I said before, if they could figure out some kind of way to take that energy on a Saturday night in that stadium and use it to power houses or something, you know, they could probably power all of Baton Rouge, 
You know, it's uh, it's that powerful when you run out of that tunnel. Well, if they can make the ground shake, yeah. <laughs> make an earthquake, some, you know. something's happening yeah, there. It's crazy. Well, Matt, I appreciate your time and uh, thanks for sharing your story on our podcast. I think it's a great uh, story. It's an encouraging story, you know, and uh, it could be a uh, you know cautionary tale. Is to be you be careful out, you know, when you're out hunting. But yeah, it's a. Uh, it's it's quite the story to see you you know where you were ten months ago and you know the recovery that you've you've gotten to uh, to show the world really I mean you've, you've I've seen you, your story out there and it's it's really a, a cool story so appreciate that yeah well I appreciate you uh, taking the time to get me on your podcast here call and uh, look forward to hearing it. Avery, I've got to say, I was a little bit of a fanboy getting to hang out with Matt and, you know, talk LSU football, especially right now in the middle of football season. Um, we obviously talked about ag and the uh, accident as well. But, you know, as you heard, you know, his time in, in his time playing football, you know, really set him up for the work that it took to recover from this. It's also really cool that he was able to stay involved with the program. And you got to see him walk down the hill at the Florida game. That That's just Pretty yeah, cool. he he's he's all about it still. But one, I mean, you obviously also heard him say, you know, it's it's you know with duck season now a thing that he's able to do after football. You know, that was a that was kind of a balance he had to play with, and he lost football, uh, duck hunting really during football. You know, mm-hmm. at LSU, and you know now he's kind of working on that balance. But he still says he makes it down there a lot. But uh, you know, what else is a big deal? You know, it's it's Alabama LSU weekend. Mm-hmm. Matt was on the last team to beat Alabama at LSU in 2010, 2011 area. I can't remember. I think it was, yeah, 2010, 2011. Mm -hmm. He beat them twice. Wow. So he's on the last team to win against Alabama, which is kind of fun for this little fun trivia for the weekend. Let's hope that that kind of continues, that kind of rubs off and gives the the Tigers some good luck this weekend. Now, back to his leg. That's a titanium leg. Titanium is strong. I mean, that's what's used for rockets and all kinds of other materials that are supposed to last a lifetime. Is this leg going to last him a lifetime? No. And actually, we texted some uh, after the story, after I shot the story and put it on Twilo. But he, I never I never could bring myself to ask him how much the leg was. I felt like it was asking somebody, <laughs> you know, because I, I know they're, they have to be expensive. And he told me, he said, you know, it's not going to last me a lifetime. It lasts three to five years. Wow. And he told me that. I knew that in person, but he also clarified. He said, it's not going to last me a lifetime. It's not going to last me three to five years. It's probably going to be closer to the three because he wow. lives in it. He said, I got this leg to live in. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm not going to baby it and, uh, you know, not do things that I would normally do. So he says it's probably going to be like three. And as far as paying for a new leg, it's $70,000. That's a luxury car. That's a very nice car. <laughs> You wow. know, that's what it, that's what a brand new leg costs, and he has to also it, it blew my mind. But he has to take it off every night and plug it up to the wall and charge it, just like we do our cell phone or our smartwatch or whatever else that we have. And he can't get it wet. You told me no, he can't get it wet. You know, so I don't know how that's going to work when it comes time for duck season. I'm sure there's yeah. some good waiters or, or what. I don't really know exactly what that's going to mean, but man, I know but, he plans to be duck hunting too, though. But you have to think about that. He's got a plan for that for the rest of his life, and he's a young guy. Yeah, he's a young guy. That's that's a big expense to have to to bank on. Yeah, and you heard him also talk about you know in the story I did on Twilight and in this story was uh you know the the way his diet has changed because he knows that's going to be something that he has to live with and mm-hmm. he's got to carry on one leg essentially 
all that weight. So he's trying to lose weight even still. So it's an interesting story. Again, Matt, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast and sharing your story with me. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a five-star review wherever you're listening right now and subscribe so you can stay up to date when we release a new episode. When you leave us feedback and reviews, Apple Podcasts and other platforms respond by putting it in front of more people. That allows us to share stories about Louisiana's farmers, ranchers, men and women in agriculture with more people. You can also help us do that by simply sharing this podcast with a friend, send it in a text, or maybe pull out their phone and show them how to how to listen to it on their phone right there in front of them. We appreciate your help sharing these stories. This podcast was produced by me, Carl Wiggers, with Avery Davidson, and the graphic design is by Monica Velasquez for the Louisiana Farm Bureau Federation. Louisiana Farm Bureau is the voice of Louisiana agriculture. 